I think that over the centuries, we have been so conditioned into the fact, into thinking that pleasure is a bad thing, that as women, we have closed off those channels in our mind that deal with pleasure. And we actually don't believe that we have that within us and that we don't deserve it and we're not entitled to it. And a lot of women will go into a relationship thinking, it's my partner's job to bring that pleasure to me. And it isn't. Your pleasure is your own responsibility. You need to open up those channels in your brain that just say, pleasure is a good thing and I'm deserving of pleasure. My guest, Seema Anand, is all about mythologies and stories about women's narratives with a focus on the erotic literatures of ancient India. She is a specialist in the Kama Sutra, which is one of my favorite books from our heritage. So much so that I have four translations of the text with many colorful posters highlighting my favorite sections. Seema has written a brilliant commentary on the Kama Sutra with her book, The Arts of Seduction. Her work is about equality for women within sex and about our right to pleasure. I loved exploring the Kama Sutra with Seema and now love this ancient text even more. Sharam, but the me, chi chi. I'm Sangeeta Pillai, and this is the Masala Podcast, a Spotify original where we talk about all those things that we're not supposed to talk about as South Asian women sex, sexuality, periods, menopause, mental health, nipple hair, shame, and many more taboos. Join me around my virtual kitchen table as I talk with some incredible women from around the world, exploring what it means to be a South Asian feminist today. Hi, I'm with Seema Anand today. Uh, Seema, welcome to the Masala Podcast. Thank you, Sangeeta. I'm so delighted to be here. I've been following Seema, and not in a creepy way, on Instagram for about six months, and I keep seeing the awesome posts that she does on the Kama Sutra, on and women and pleasure. And I've been thinking, oh my God, I'd love to have Seema on the podcast. And here she well, is. Thank you for asking me, as I said, Sangeeta. <laughs> so Seema, let's begin um, by you telling us a little bit about your background and your life. So um, I guess it's always a little difficult to kind of go into that bit. But um, so I grew up in India. I was born there. I come from... Um, a slightly unusual family compared to most people who I grew up with, um, which in retrospect is always an exciting thing to think about. But uh, I, I guess I was fortunate enough to come from a very long line of women who believed that women had independence. And so all the way down from my grand great-grandmother, who was also a working woman, she was also a social activist, and um, women had agency in the family. They had an identity in the family. So I'm fortunate enough to come from that kind of background. Uh, weirdly enough, growing up, I'm, I'm now 59 this year, which means that I grew up in very post-colonial India and with a very defined idea of what the educated woman studied. So I can recite um, the classics backwards to you. I know everything that the Iliad and the Odyssey have to say. I can actually recite the Bible backwards to you. I can recite Shakespeare at any point. But um, didn't know anything about the Indian literatures because that was never taught to us. I did uh, literature at college, but we weren't taught any of the Indian literatures. That came to me after I moved to the UK, weirdly enough. And um, yeah, it's, it's just something I've never looked 
back after having started because somewhere inside you, you must have, I always figure that there must be some kind of natural instinct that takes you to a particular route or a particular point of origin. So how did you go from there to finding the Kama Sutra and sharing the Kama Sutra, which is what you do? So um, I basically work with stories and I have always um, sort of worked around the premise that the stories that we tell define who we are. So as you know, in, in our Indian literature, we tell a lot of stories about how the man comes home and he's drunk and he beats up his wife, but she's so good. She's so good. She never, ever says anything. She keeps it all within her. She keeps the dignity of the family intact. So You've kind of defined what a good woman is supposed to be. You know, the the one who never, ever speaks up for herself is a good woman, but the one who fights for her own rights is a bad person. For the longest time, I looked at how, I have looked always at how these stories define our identities, how they um, define our behaviors even. And I discovered over time that we never, ever told stories of a woman's right to her own body. That was always somebody else's property. It was always somebody else's permission to give. And it sort of surprised me because we are, at the end of the day, the culture that wrote the Kama Sutra. So I went off to look for what had been silenced. I thought it was going to be a, a short paper, 15,000 words. That was my plan. Um, you know, just basically looking at the stories that we'd silenced. And um, yeah, that was gosh, 16, 17 years ago. I haven't looked back, as I said, you know, it's just, I have got totally absorbed. I kind of have done a little bit of reading on the Kama Sutra as well over the years. And when I first sort of found it, when I found it, as you know, when so many millions of women have found it, I was so excited because like you, I've grown up in a culture that says, you know, women, you know, uh, Pleasure isn't part of our kind of vocabulary. We're kind of having sex with a man and all of this stuff. And then I remember reading the Kama Sutra for the first time and I thought, oh my God, this is from our culture. This is talking about sex and orgasms and women and pleasure and all of these things. And I got supremely excited about it. So I wanted to ask you as somebody who's obviously done a lot of work on this and written about it, and you've written a beautiful book about it as well. How is this really ancient text relevant to us as women today? So I discovered Sangeeta as I started reading it um, and got more and more into it because I think what happens is most people think of it as a book about positions and most people think it's a book about sex, which of course it isn't. And um, it's actually a book about social conduct and it's telling, it was written to teach men uh, urbane, wealthy men, how to live the perfect life, how to build their home, how to decorate their home, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a long text on uh, lots of things. But in one of the sections, which is section two of the book, it talks about the arts of pleasure. And it deals with this whole idea of how a woman's pleasure is absolutely essential. It is more important even than the man's in terms of moksha, in terms of the path to heaven. And to me, that was just such a fascinating idea that, um, you know, just the fact that it talked about something that nobody ever talks about, and certainly nobody ever gives it any kind of importance, the fact that a woman's pleasure should even exist, because the Kama Sutra itself was the very first text, you know, when it's, when Vatsya, the, the author of the text says that up until then, 
it had been believed that um, pleasure was important, but it was actually the pleasure of the woman was dependent on the pleasure of the man, that she did not have an independent source of pleasure. And he breaks that particular myth and he says that the pleasure of a woman is not just extremely important, but it is totally independent of a man, has nothing to do with a man. And to me, that was just so exciting. But you can imagine what it must have been like 2000 years ago when he said it. It was so controversial. And there were, I mean, it divided the scholars and there was absolute chaos, which is what I think put this book on the map, just the controversy around it. And I find that somewhere in those 2000 years, we kind of regressed back to that point that a woman's pleasure didn't matter. But everything that the Kama Sutra was doing to try and change the, the narrative of women is so relevant today because also not just was it trying to change the narrative of women, trying to sort of give them more agency, trying to say that they were human species, you know, an independent species of human beings that deserve their own pleasure. But also I think just this, um, it, sorry, I'm just, I get terribly excited when I talk about this because to me, it's just so important. Well, please get excited because <laughs> I'm excited listening it's to you. It's just so important to think that here was, a text that was actually talking about trying to give women a platform of equality. And today, when we fight for equality, most of us will uh, start on the outside and come inwards because we have grown up with very Western ideas of how sex is taboo, pleasure is bad, etc. So, you know, we do. We start our fight in the outside world and head inwards. I think that the Kama Sutra decided to head outwards from within. So it starts in the bedroom. And it says, if you cannot give her that respect and that platform in the bedroom, in the privacy of your bedroom, you ain't going to be able to do it outside. And it does this very, very cleverly. I mean, you know, like in the corporate world, you always say that change has to be really incremental. You know, you have to do teensy little bits of change at a time. It does that. It actually starts with teensy little bits of change. It doesn't say, we're here. We've got to change to that extreme opposite viewpoint because let's face it, you do that and everybody shuts down and nobody wants to take that forward. So, yeah, I think that it's, um, it is possibly the most relevant book, not for what people think it's saying, but for, it, for what it actually says. I've spent so many afternoons reading extracts from various translations of the Kama Sutra. It's an absolute delight, this book from Our Culture. Yes, Our Culture talks about female pleasure. Our Culture talks extensively about a woman's enjoyment of her sexuality, of her body. There are so many pages devoted to women actively leading the lovemaking, encircling her lover like a wine encircling a tree, or teasing her partner by withdrawing her kisses, or, in one instance, clinging to his shoulder and back and climbing his body as if it were a tree. But it's important to say here that the Kama Sutra is about a lot more than sex. It talks about the 64 refined arts that need to be mastered to be a cosmopolitan citizen of the world, be it learning to play the veena or other musical instruments, learning the art of the massage, preparing wines and exotic foods, teaching parrots and minor birds to talk, staging plays, improvising poetry, and so much more. And when it comes to lovemaking, 
The Kama Sutra says that a woman's erotic pleasure is paramount and that a man needs to spend time understanding a woman's feelings, emotions and body so that both may enjoy equal sexual pleasure. That is our culture. There's something I wanted to ask your opinion on. Why do you think the world is so terrified of female pleasure? Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Um, so, okay, there's a couple of things. One is, of course, that uh, at the same time as the Kama Sutra is being written, which is 300 and something AD, at the very same time, the very first ecumenical council of the Catholic Church is set up, 325 AD. And they come in saying pleasure is bad, sex is bad. By 342 AD, they've passed their first law banning oral sex and anal sex because that's just for pleasure. That's not for procreation. And at the very same time, as I said, across the oceans, Vatsyayana is sitting there writing the Kama Sutra, talking about how exquisite is pleasure, how wonderful is pleasure, how it is the path to heaven. And somewhere along the way, we certainly as a nation, but the world in general, got stuck between these two viewpoints. So it's like we live in this... I don't know, this little dusk, um, it's almost like a weird no man's land, um, you know, where you don't know which way to turn. But I think most of us have resultantly grown up with this idea of pleasure generally being a bad thing. And then specifically women's pleasure being a bad thing. I believe it comes from, so if we go back to a time when they're saying that pleasure is the path to heaven and women have eight times the capacity for pleasure. It was seen as more shakti. It was seen as more power. And I really think that it was about, it was about control. It was like, how can a woman have eight times the capacity for pleasure, which means eight times the shakti, eight times the um, path to moksha, whatever it is that you translate it as. So I think that's where the original shutting down happens, like it's a way of controlling the female of the population. So they don't get beyond themselves. And as you've probably noticed, um, it's, you know, we, we don't ever think that sex itself is a taboo subject, like we were discussing, that people are very happy to go and tell coarse jokes and innuendo is, you know, is the thing to do. It, it, at any point in any party, You'll find somebody or the other sort of, you know, a bit of a nudge, nudge, wink, wink, something inappropriate, no problem. It's all a joke. Haha, <laughs> it's fine. But the moment you talk about it more seriously, you talk about pleasure, suddenly then it's taboo because that is absolutely not allowed. So it's not sex that became taboo. It became pleasure that was taboo. That's so interesting. You're absolutely right. So there is so many like conversations in pubs where you're like nudge, nudge, wink, wink, joke, you know, whatever. And that is all fine. But the minute you talk about pleasure and female pleasure or female orgasm or anything to do with the female body, that becomes deeply yeah. uncomfortable. That's so interesting. Yeah, and isn't it, it becomes, it, it's not, um, sunga, it's like, and especially if you try and talk about it in a beautiful way. If I was to say the same thing in really coarse language, it would be fine. But the moment you try and talk about it as something gorgeous, somehow, I don't know, I don't know where that comes from. That would be really interesting to explore where that comes from. I guess it's our discomfort with it. Probably. But underneath it all, discomfort with women 
expressing sexuality or any sexual Yeah, because thoughts. I guess it just makes people gives uncomfortable, them agency, doesn't it? The very fact that they're yeah, that you could exactly. be talking about this and that you would have the chance to feel it. I don't know. Is there just this level of inadequacy? I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's a combination of everything. Yeah, absolutely. So if we've carried these kind of rules of women have to be this and can't be that and you've got to be a mother first, uh, nothing else matters, all of these things. If we've kind of codified it within our genetics almost, because, you know, when I look at my own life, my mother, her mother, her mother, her mother, this is what it was. So I think maybe that's the other thing where we are conditioned by generations to be a specific way. Then we are uh, asked by the men and men coach women to kind of condition women further. You know, it's such a complex thing and I find it really difficult to think about where it's come from and how long it's carried on. It almost feels impossible sometimes. You know, yeah, these are the stories, as I said, we've carried forward. These stories define us. Until we change the stories, nothing else is going to change. You can change all the laws in the world, but till the stories change, nothing changes. And I find that um, it is perpetuated constantly. So for instance, if you're a mother... You have no other life. I mean, the idea of a woman who is in her 40s even, let's say she's a single mother, her role is to just be a mother. How dare she even think beyond that to her own pleasure? I mean, it is like you've committed a cardinal sin. It's terrible. How could you do that? And I hate it. You know, when uh, on regular basis, especially around Mother's Day, they will do this this poetry around mothers. And it's all about her sacrifice. And it's all about my wonderful mother who gave up everything, who killed herself to do this. You know, why can we not love and totally celebrate the mother who was strong enough to do what she liked to do for herself and pass that on to you? Because in her joy, she encompassed you and brought you forward to experience your joy. But we never, ever do that. It's always about how, you know, this is her role. God, I really, really hate it. Me too. It makes me so angry because when you were talking, I was feeling get myself getting all riled up because it's like, it's almost like in our culture, we need to kind of deify women. Yeah. So either they are um, mothers and sisters uh, or they are, you know, sluts. These, these are the two kind of ways we seem to look at women. And even the swearing in, in Hindi, the ultimate insult you can call a man is, you know, about his mother or his sister. Yeah. I mean, that says so much, doesn't it, about the culture? It's always made me really, really angry. I wonder, Seema, if we could talk a little bit about the work you do. You've written this absolutely wonderful book. Um, you have all this work on YouTube and Instagram and you're talking about these really fundamental ideas of women and pleasure and, you know, changing uh, quite some of the fundamental mores of our culture. I wonder if you could tell us about how your work has um, helped women, if you've got any examples or instances that you're happy to share with us, that would be amazing. Yes, of course. So I, what I decided in terms of how I was going to do this was um, I realized that when I was growing up, I didn't actually have any role models. You know how you just said that culturally you grow up in a particular place, you you follow certain mores, you know, you, you, you kind of, you think, yeah, fine, uh, Helen of Troy was in Troy, 
she could do what she did, but what do I, Seema, as an Indian girl growing up in Delhi, what do I do? Who do I follow? So my role in this has literally been to dig out stories and instances from our ancient literature, to put them out there, just to be able to give people some kind of role model, something to cling on to that, no, what we're doing now is not bad. It's not sinful. It's not against our religion. It's not against our cultural background. It's very much a part of who we were. And it's okay to be part of that because we are. it makes us still a part of our own cultural background. And I have to say that um, the responses on an everyday basis, if I get this many nasty people, I get that many emails saying, you've changed my life. Um, thank you just for being there. Even if it's about one little tiny step, because it has to be one tiny step. Recently, there was this young girl interviewing me for something. And she said, you know, one of the things that you've done for me is um, you've given me the strength to want to be visible again. I don't know about you, but I grew up always wanting to wear nude lipstick. And it's only in the last couple of years that I've come to wearing bright red lipstick. And she said to me, she said, I've always wanted to kind of, because she has all these, she, what she felt were really forward thinking ideas. She wanted to break the norms, etc. And she said, I felt so guilty at doing that, that I wanted to sort of push myself into the background. And she said, now I feel like I can come into the fore and be visible. And I just thought that was one of the greatest compliments I could get. That's absolutely wonderful. Um, it's so heartening to hear about these things. And also just picking up from what you said earlier, there are so many stories in our our culture that are about strong women and women who are feisty and fiery and all of these things. And somehow we never hear about it or we don't hear about it with the right lens. Like I grew up hearing about Sita in, in the Doordarshan version of Ramayana, which was awful. You know, like, or it, it's these images of self-sacrificing, demure women who are kind of two steps behind the husband. This is the story of South Asian women that I grew up with. And that's not the truth, is it? Can you tell us a little bit about some of these women? Yeah, so let's about? actually go back to Sita since she is the most well-known of the figures. And yeah. truly, I want every woman listening out there to go and rediscover Sita's story because I think we all want to be like her. So, you know, the problem is, unfortunately, like you said, it's also the retelling of the stories. And especially, I, I mean, a lot of people who've rewritten about Sita's, uh, rewritten the story from, in inverted commas, Sita's point of view, it's always the same. Nothing has actually changed. All they've done is they've given more space for her lamentations. She didn't. She obviously she got upset at places and she did lament, but she also did other things. We never ever tell stories. Do you remember that bit in the story where she's kidnapped by Robin? Okay. Yes. Now imagine he's he they say in the story that he kidnaps her, he puts her onto his flying chariot, he takes up, he takes off, he's 30,000 feet in the air when Jatayu the eagle comes to fight with him, and Robin is out there having this mega battle with, with uh, Jatayu. This particular Uran Khatola, this flying chariot, is it's hanging, it's suspended in midair, it's going all over the place. She has just been kidnapped. Think how frightened she must have been. She still has the presence of mind to take off her jewelry and throw it to the ground so that Ram can look for it. Do we ever tell that story of what kind of courage? I mean, imagine any of us in that situation and think how we would be reacting. Where do you find that core of strength from inside you? 
Okay, when she is in captivity for a year, you hear in all the stories about how Ram gathers the army, you hear about how he feels, how sad he is, then this one comes and they fight this. The entire journey from his, his uh, you know, the forest where he's been living all the way to Lanka. Do you ever hear stories of Sita who had been in, in captivity for a year? She's all alone. She's surrounded by the enemy. The kind of strength it would have taken for her to maintain herself over there, she, remember, she knows that she has to be conciliatory enough so that they don't kill her, but not so conciliatory that they take advantage of her. She's got to maintain that balance. Can you just imagine the power of this woman to be able to do that a whole year without any support except her faith? That, you know, yes, somebody will come, her husband will come, but still it takes a hell of a, I would have been a puddle of tears, you know, you would have had to scoop me up <laughs> yeah, with yeah, a little yeah. spoon and, you know, yeah, put me yeah, away. Yeah, and then yeah, when, when she is made to leave the kingdom, she brings up her sons all by herself. She gives them their, their education. Her husband, their father is the king, never asks for help. She does it all by herself. Isn't that the story that we want to be hearing? We don't tell those stories. We never hear that part of it, ever. We never hear these stories from any of the kind of women in our literature. And of course, know? the, the other this thing, I think we were having this conversation um, recently about the fact that, you know, in Tantra, so I'm a student of Tantra. I, um, I've been studying the philosophy for a long time. And, of course, in Tantra, the, the thing that most people know about, of course, is the sexo-yogic positions, you know, where the, um, the sexo-yogic positions are used as the path to heaven and they're used as the path to, um, to, uh, to moksha. But again, it's the, always the man as the doer. So all the tantras that have, you know, that the tantras were dialogues between Lord Shiva and um, the goddess Parvati where he explains different aspects of the universe, of the cosmos to her. And in each of the tantras that have been translated, you always find that it is the man is the doer and the woman is the path through whom he channels that pleasure. So he is using her as the path for his moksha. And those are the ones that we've come to respect and, um, well, you know, to really sort of follow. But the tantras in which it is the woman who is the doer, and uses the man as her, the path to channel her shaktis. Those tantras have never been translated. They, they exist. They just haven't been translated. Because for the people who are translating them, I guess it wasn't that worth their while to do it. Wow. So wow. a lot of this stuff hasn't been translated or it's been translated according to... I'm sorry, I know I interrupted you, but I was just... Saying that, um, no, 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 no. You know, this is where I find that the, the entire sort of um, narrative has gone a particular way because either those, those particular texts have not been translated or they've been conveniently changed in the telling. I was just, what I was about to say was pretty much what you were saying, that how shameful is it that all of this exists, but we have no access to it? Because the people who've chosen to translate it have decided, oh, actually, oh, this is about a woman, so we don't really care. So we're not going to bother translating this. And which means all of this is lost to us. That is such a shame. Yeah, and it's been 2,000 years of lost. Or many more, many more yeah, than that, of course. Years. But um, mm. 
And you just yeah, think, well, at what point do we start looking for that? What point do we start finding it again? Not looking for it, but finding it again. I wonder if we could talk about, I think something you mentioned in our previous conversation about how texts like the Kama Sutra, I'll come back to that particular text because that's the one most people are familiar with, where um, there is so much kind of um, erotic material, like you mentioned the pan, um, you talked about jewelry. I wonder if you could tell us a couple of these, because I love listening to things Absolutely. like this. Okay, so let's start with the jewelry, because honestly, that was where everything... So, so I actually came across the very first reference to that in a book called Love in a Dead Language. Love in a Dead Language is written by an American um, scholar called Lee Siegel. And it. I wouldn't suggest anybody trying to read it because it is quite painful. It's an academic spoof on the Kama Sutra. So unless you're really familiar with the points of the Kama Sutra, it doesn't make very much sense. But in a footnote somewhere, he had written this thing about the jewelry. So in ancient times, the idea, like I said, you know, this was a, the Kama Sutra was written to create the most refined society. It was about making people understand. It said that if you could get people to understand the beauty the, uh, and the, the elegance and the refinement around the act of pleasure, you would then have created the most civilized society in the world. So, um, and then it goes on to say, of course, that the women's pleasure is the most important thing because that's where it will depend. Your, the longevity of your sexual relationship or your sexual life will depend on the woman's pleasure. Because if she's bored or fed up or finds herself in pain, etc., she's not going to want to go through with it. So it's, it's very, very focused on that. And truly, I think somewhere along the way, it was written by women because it's very much about the beauty and the elegance of it. So the first thing I read about was how when women were taught how to perform a particular position, how to execute a position, because it's all about being an art form. It has to be done properly. If you're going to have the right kind of pleasure from it, etc., etc., you didn't thrash around like an animal. That doesn't help. So when you're on top, which is an amazing thing anyway in ancient India, because anywhere in any other part of the world, you were not allowed to be on top as a woman. That was the that's the position of power. You you got to choose when you started, when you stopped. So in Judaic mythology, there is also um, a story about Lilith. Lilith, who was Adam's first consort, and she says, I'm made from the same mud as you. I am equal to you. I can be on top. And she's thrown out of paradise for that. And she's, she's now a demoness in ancient mythology, you know, for having demanded her rights. Anyway, the council just says you could be on top. But the right way to perform that when you're on top is to only move your hips. You don't move the upper part of your body. One, because I guess it would throw your back out if you moved the rest of your body and you jumped around. And um, so, you, you know, you protected yourself. But also your own pleasure, because that's how the anatomy accesses certain G-spots inside you. There are many, many G-spots, by the way. So anyway, you wore a girdle around your waist with lots of little bells on it, with lots of gungurus. And you made sure that they didn't make a sound. So when in our um, ancient literature, when they talk about she put on her jingling girdle, you knew that she had taken her position on top. Oh, 
I yeah. have no so idea. So when you read in certain of the Jain literatures where they say, and the women came with their jingling girdles, you knew that these were the highly accomplished courtesans, the absolute creme de la creme. And they knew about the arts of pleasure and were hence being invited because they were the Nagar Shobhinis. Uh, you know, they, they were the, um, well, how would you translate Nagar Shobhini? The, um, the beautification of the, the, the town, the, the city. Yeah, they were, the they towns, were the yeah. women on whom the success and the well-being of the entire town depended because they understood the paths to pleasure. They understood the paths to heaven. So each lovemaking position was indicated by a piece of jewelry because you wore that to understand how to perform that position. And um, so this one was the first one that I read about in a footnote in Lee Siegel's book. And then when I decided to go look for it, and that's when I decided to write the book. And um, so I think possibly my favorite piece of jewelry is the seven of the nine straight necklace of pearls. And this is for the sitting position. And basically, the idea is that it's supposed to swing gently from side to side in the sitting position so that the lover gets a glimpse of his beloved's beautiful breasts behind that strings, those strings of pearls. And it then goes on to explain in very kind of... So the way that the Kama Sutra explains it is, this is what I mean about metaphors. It says that the, the woman from the country, the uneducated woman, will sit on the man's lap the urbane, sophisticated woman will sit on his knees. And you think, how does that even work? Because if you sit on the knees, I mean, are you going to even be able to penetrate? So what it basically means is that if you sit directly on the, the lap, all you do is you jump up and down. It's not an elegant movement. And certainly the, the pearls will not go from side to side. They'll just hop and you won't be able to see them. You'll be too close up front. So sitting on the knees meant that you would learn how to balance your hands on the man's knees. So you'd lean backwards, balancing on the man's knees. Then you would lift up your hips a little bit. And then you would literally focus on moving your pearl necklace from side to side. And with that movement of the pearl necklace, the other movement, the rest of your body would move accordingly. So that's how you perform that position. That's incredible. How sophisticated isn't it is just that? when you when you're telling me so it's that sophisticated and then the the act of lovemaking is this whole kind of art, isn't it? And science and it's choreographed almost to be really really beautiful at this very um, sophisticated level. That's astonishing. I'd like to read you a little extract from the Kama Sutra. This translation is by Wendy Doniger and Sudhir Kakkar. Resting on the chest of the man she loves, she raises his head and bites him on the neck with the garland of jewels or any other bite she knows. When she sees the man, even in the daytime, in the midst of a group of people displaying the mark that she herself made on him, she laughs unnoticed by the others. Then, pretending to wrinkle her face and pretending to rebuke the man as if in jealousy, she displays the marks made on her own body. When two people behave in this way, with modesty and concern for one another's feelings, their love will never wane, not even in a hundred years. 
You, you have to remember this is a time when lovers did not have mobile phones where they could text messages to each other, but lovers have always had the need to send messages to each other. And so they pretty much used what they had as, um, as their tools to send messages. And Pan itself had a very erotic vocabulary. So you could pretty much use, mostly they would use things that were lying in the kitchen. So you could use zira, cumin, to say, um, you know, I'd like to meet you tonight. You could send something else to say, I think somebody suspects. You could say, haldi, turmeric was sent to say, it's safe, the danger has passed. You know, so basically you, you use pretty much what you could get your hands on. But pan had an entire erotic vocabulary of its own, because unlike the Hallmark cards, you don't just say, I love you. You have so many things to say to each other. And so different types of pan meant uh, meaning what their shape was, what their content, what you put inside it. Even if you were in person, how you handed the pan, so the, the formation of your fingers when you gave the pan to each other had its own vocabulary. So the Ras Leelas of Krishna and Radha, all of the messages that are done through the giving of pan to each other. And if you don't know what those pans mean, you don't know what they're saying to each other. Or even in how, in Kadambari, you know, it's this whole thing of what mudra the pan is handed over with. And so literally you could send a pan which said, I love you. You could send a pan which, say, which said, yes, sex is fine, but no strings attached. You could send a pan saying, can't stand you, don't call me again. You could. That was like an inside-out pawn made in a rectangle, torn in the middle. And it was like, I can't stand you. Don't call me again. Uh, you could send a pawn. You had a pawn which said to your dinner guest, now get out because you wanted to be with your beloved. You've had enough of them. They're not leaving. You gave them pawn scented with cinema and it was like, okay, it's time for us to leave. Oh my God, this blows my mind, Ziva. This is so cool. Thank you. And, and wow. unfortunately, even the Kama Sutra, a lot of the translations will merely mention Pan, but they don't tell you. This particular um, chapter on Pan, I discovered in an 11th century commentary called Nagar Sarvaswam, written by a Buddhist monk called Padmashri. And he's actually written an entire chapter on Pan, and that was my starting point to then go look for the rest of the information. It's absolutely, absolutely brilliant. It's just so exciting and so sexy, you know, and so sophisticated. Yes. I love it. You know, when you were talking, I was thinking about how we could use some of this in our lives today. Because, you know, when you are in a, you know, longer relationship, you know, it, it, if, if sex becomes perfunctionary, you know, it loses the magic. But by creating this art around it and by making it so evolved, you know, you're making it multi-layered, you're making it interesting. And wouldn't that be amazing to, to add to our lives today? Yeah, and actually the Kama Sutra yeah. says that the longer you are in a relationship, that's the best sex. So it's not about saying, oh, I just met somebody, there's such chemistry and we just looked at each other and we jumped on each other. That's not great sex. The really good pleasure, the really good, Sex comes from a very long-term relationship where you believe that that so-called chemistry is no longer there. So you're not wanting to sort of jump on each other because it says that one, it gives you a comfort factor and comfort is extremely good for good sex. Second, it gives you um, the time, you know, where it takes you longer to come to arousal it gives you more time to explore a lot along the way and to experience every little 
sensation. And third, it provides you, you know, the second sec section of the Kama Sutra, which talks about the arts of pleasure, it provides you with all these different ideas of things that you can do on the way. I mean, don't ever, people think of sex as a race to the finish. You know, you've washed your makeup off, off you've gotten into your night, you turn the lights off, and then you're, you're, you're out there, like, I'm finished, I'm done. It isn't a race to the finish. There's lots of little stops along the way. It talks about the sort of conversation you should have. It talks about the sort of thing you should do. So, you know, in ancient times, they would say that the man should paint a little portrait of the woman, you know, along as part of the foreplay. Because I guess the idea was that this is where you gave her your full attention. You know, you actually, she posed for you, you sat there. Look at that full eye-on-eye -eye contact, you know. It's just the kind of different love bites you should try that... It's just sort of this whole idea of experimenting with different things. But I always say that, you know, one of the things, another thing that they had a lot of um, erotic vocabulary around was the love bites and the love scratches. So different types of scratches. And I always say to people that, okay, you know, we don't have maybe as much time to have maybe four hours of foreplay. Fair enough. But this idea of love scratches having their own vocabulary the next time you get your manicure done, take a photo of that manicure, send it to your partner. It just makes them realize that you're thinking about them in that way. It adds a little frisson. You know, it just gives that little bit of excitement to, to a space that wasn't there before. And I just think it's, it's, it's that. But it all boils down to one thing, um, Sangeeta, and I think that is about wanting to do it. I think that over the centuries, we have been so conditioned into the fact, into thinking that pleasure is a bad thing, that as women, we have closed off those channels in our mind that deal with pleasure. And we actually don't believe that we have that within us and that we don't deserve it and we're not entitled to it. And a lot of women will go into a relationship thinking, it's my partner's job to bring that pleasure to me. And it isn't. Your pleasure is your own responsibility. You need to open up those channels in your brain that just say pleasure is a good thing and I'm deserving of pleasure and just explore it in your own head if you don't want to talk about it. But yeah, it's time that we start opening ourselves up to it. Absolutely. And I wonder if we could take some of this erotic vocabulary as women into our own lives and somehow added to that, to our sexual lives, to our pleasure? I think so. I think that pleasure is not about having a partner. It's not about being in a relationship. It's about, you know, we say in Tantra, that's your Shakti. So it's about raising that Shakti within you to understand. Because, you know, if you think about it, if we say that the Shakti rises from the Muladhar Chakra, the Muladhar Chakra, which is right at the bottom, it has to traverse your entire body. It goes past every bit of it. It arouses every part of you. That Shakti is not just for yes. sex. But if you have compressed that, if you suppress that, if you have said that that is not even to be aroused, the rest of you is not going to be aroused. Your entire creativity depends on this. And I think that, yeah, it's about time that we, you know, I guess it's first about, I, I don't know which comes first, the chicken or the egg. It's about saying, I am entitled to it. I'm deserving of it. It's not just about sex. Sex is not just about penetration. Pleasure is a good thing. It's a Shakti. I mean, I don't know which point you pick up first. 
But I think it's so important in our lives just to be able to live our best lives. It makes your skin glow, makes your hair better. So true. I was just about to say, I suppose all of those points that you mentioned, because I think we've, we're in a society where we think, um, like you said, we have to be in a relationship to have sex or we've been conditioned to believe whether that's by media or porn or things our friends have said that penetration is equal to sex. You know, we've or that forgotten sex is equal that to pleasure. carry this like, yeah. go to penetration yeah. is equal to pleasure. Exactly. We've forgotten somewhere that we have, we have these, almost these powerhouses within us, you know, Shakti is this, you know, I can't even describe how powerful I see it in my head, but we don't even know we have it. So we go through our lives without accessing it? Really? So, yeah, you know, from being the people who have eight times, being the species that has eight times the, the, the capacity for pleasure, we've kind of gone into minus eight times. So we're in the other yeah, way. Yeah, and that, that is very, very sad. But conversations like this, I think, um, and work like the work you do, I think it brings us back to that point, reminds us of what we have within ourselves, each, each and every one of us. Um, I wonder if you tell us a little bit about your book. Okay, so the book was written um, under a lot of, oh my God, a lot of tears. I have to say, I hated the idea of writing. You know, just this idea that pleasure is something that must be part of your life, whether you're with somebody or not with somebody. And in today's day and age, I'm trying to break down that misconception that if you're single, you have to go to pleasuring yourself. If you're in a relationship, then self-pleasuring is a bad thing because that should, it, it shouldn't be, one is not exclusive to the other and so on. And just sort of trying to bring back this idea that it's altogether beneficial for you on one level and and the other that why should you be denied that don't think of pleasure you know the um the patron goddess of the kama sutra is saraswati it's the goddess of music and learning because pleasure comes in so many different ways and the 62 skills that you're supposed to learn um as this urbane woman or urbane man going into the world they include everything from singing and dancing and theater and music and botany and gemology and everything because all of those things bring some form of pleasure and you're supposed to be able to enjoy it in so many different ways. Absolutely, absolutely. So I think if we went back to our own culture, our own books and our own literature, which are talking about our pleasure and how to access that i think we'd all be richer yeah. for it in a word yes <laughs> thank you so much thank you so much seema anand it's been an absolute pleasure <laughs> like pun intended to talk to you uh, and to have you on masala podcast and i'm very enthused and excited by everything i've heard today and i'm going to go back to my um four copies of the Kama Sutra that I have, and I'm going to go do some digging. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in this episode, please head to the show notes where I've listed some information about organizations 
which can offer help and support. I'm Sangeeta Pillai. Thank you for listening to The Masala Podcast, a Spotify original. Masala Podcast is part of my platform, Soul Sutras. What's that all about? Soul Sutras is a network for South Asian women, a safe space to tell our stories, a place to reclaim our bodies, to tackle taboos within our culture, to be exactly who we want to be. Get in touch and tell me your stories about your taboos. Check out my website, soulsutras.co.uk or get in touch via email at soulsutras.co.uk. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Just look for Soul Sutras. Masala Podcast was created and produced by me, Sangeeta Pillai, edited by Orbis, the studio, opening music by Sunny Robertson. Besharam, Batamiz, Gandhi, hi, hi, bad